Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Thanks very much for coming along today. I'm really pleased that Emma Palmer has come up from northern New South Wales. Emma Palmer did a PhD at the University of New South Wales. It's got a very extensive and impressive publication record, including a Cambridge book on the International Criminal Court in Southeast Asia. And in the past has worked very much on the relationship between changing norms and changing law, especially in the area of international criminal law and especially in the area of Southeast Asia. Is that, that's yeah, correct. That's but today, just going to slightly shift focus and look at this question about infrastructure and international law. And so, Emma, thank you for coming and thank you for presenting and I'll hand it over to you. Okay, well, thank you so much. It's an absolute honour to be here. I'll begin by first acknowledging the Yogera, Jogera and Togo people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, South Sea Islander peoples present or listening today. Oh yes, yes sure. Um, particularly important because it's sorry day today so I'm acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land. And also thank you to all of you. I cannot think of a better group of people really to talk about this topic actually and so I feel really honoured to have this opportunity to sort of um, reflect on some initial work that I've been doing but also some new directions that all of you are really expert in. Thank you also to Jenny and Megan and everybody else for organising this session. Also to be here doing an in-person seminar and getting used to using slides in public again. <laughs> okay, as I said, this is sort of an area that's been inspired from, actually from work I did before I entered academia when I worked as an infrastructure investment analyst and it also has come up in field work that I've been doing across the region, often talking to human rights activists who for many people their day-to-day work's actually taken up on a lot of land dispute type issues and mega infrastructure would come up as part of that and it's always been something that I thought is quite important. And also, as we all know, I suppose here, Australia and its allies have been really promoting the role of infrastructure, investment to increase influence and engagement in the region, particularly, of course, in response to China. These same policies that are emphasising the idea of the international rules-based order it's obviously a bit of an obscure term, as we all know, but generally refers to the promotion of international institutions, treaties, standards, and the United Nations framework. So there's this emphasis upon infrastructure as one of the arms of this promotion of the rules-based order in the region. And yet the part that I'm sort of interested in is the connection between the rules-based order and international law and infrastructure itself. If we see that the rules-based order, a big part of that is adjudication and standards for international law, how does infrastructure actually fit with that alignment? And in fact, is there or how can there be good alignment between promoting infrastructure actually and the rules-based order in a sense? Although I'm more focused on the international law question for this audience today, I thought we might take it a little bit more broadly. My plan is basically to explain why I think that infrastructure is important to start thinking about in the international law space. I know a lot of you are already thinking about it, but from where I sit in international law, it's just not really front and centre. I basically throw a few ideas out there for discussion. So a few comments about my theoretical thinking and approach to this question, and then review a couple of examples of key intersections or links between international law and infrastructure, mainly using examples from the Asian highway. I should say that 
when I say infrastructure, I'm really referring to uh, physical infrastructure, um, particularly mega infrastructure projects. This can include ports, towers, undersea cables, but mostly today I'm, I'm going to use roads, mostly talk about roads. I think they're quite a familiar example that represent a lot of the common factors of the infrastructure in terms of being material, large, expensive assets that are very long-term in nature and facilitate connectivity in some way, including across distances. And then I'll bring it back to this question of Australian policy really for our discussion, I think, towards the end. So just to sort of reiterate a point that many of you will be familiar with, of course, there have been big commitments to infrastructure. It's not just an Australia thing. This is a priority for the G7. Of course, it's a priority for China with the Belt and Road Initiative, which is thought to have gained so much influence, partly due to its governance approach and also, of course, the requirement for recipient states to take usually quite large loans to finance these infrastructure investments, which is often referred to the idea of, as the sort of debt trap and debt trap diplomacy. We know that infrastructure is needed and it's important to implement states' obligations under the human rights treaties and environmental climate change treaties that they are all part of. And also, on the other hand, the level of sort of disrepaired and unbuilt infrastructure across our region, you know, in Australia and across the region, often after decades, often of mismanagement, underinvestment, privatisation, in some cases corruption, in some cases colonial legacies, creates this quite natural narrative that there is a funding gap because we also have growing demand for infrastructure and it's needed for the economy, all of these things. So we have these funding gaps and apparently you know, the only way to fill these gaps is through investment, particularly investment sponsored for various reasons by states, multilateral development banks, I'll get to that, but particularly through attracting private investment as well, including through public-private partnership infrastructure. What's happening here, I think, is that Australia and its allies are trying to kind of react to the influence of the Belt and Road Initiative. They're trying to sort of tread this tension, but they're trying to do it in a way that doesn't attract the critiques of the Belt and Road Initiative, of damaging the environment, damaging human rights, involving debt traps. And I guess I'm wondering how that will be done, <laughs> essentially. So how can this be done in a way that's aligned with the rules-based order? So we have the US-Australia-Japan, sorry, US, Australia-Japan-US Trilateral Infrastructure Partnership as part of that, and the Quad Infrastructure Coordination Group. And the kind of value proposition here is that they're sort of presenting themselves as financing infrastructure that will somehow promote democracy, I mean, these are words actually used in the documents, and increase agency of developing state partners, and they'll do this basically in a way that can therefore promote this international rules-based order somehow. And... Many are saying that Australia can kind of navigate this US-China tension in this way by focusing on the kind of third way of cooperating, working with multilateral development banks, some of the Japanese entities and others, that have these so-called kind of good sustainability credentials. They have standards, guidelines in place that can mean that these are the sorts of infrastructure projects that will do this good work for human rights and for promoting norms associated with this international order. And this is also a very general background. But basically what I'm saying is that given all of this attention and promotion of infrastructure diplomacy, it's time for international lawyers basically to start thinking more seriously about infrastructure, not just as a potential subject of a legal dispute or as providing some kind of context, including development context in which we all do our work, but as actually potentially playing a role in shaping international law itself. So the emphasis that's getting in diplomacy needs to start getting attention elsewhere. 
So that's not to say that it's not getting attention in many of the other areas. Of course, as we all know, there's no shortage of blog posts and articles kind of about infrastructure diplomacy. And I thought I'd just mention briefly some of those initiatives. So a big part of the Pacific Step Up, many of you obviously will be familiar with this, the Australia Infrastructure Financing Facility for the Pacific. And all of this is, I should say, with a new government, not going to change. I mean, every indication is that infrastructure is a big part of that. Commentators were saying over the weekend, even that you know, one of the first things that the Labor government would do is reiterate the prioritisation of the climate infrastructure partnership in the region, which is something that Albanese spoke to the Lowy Institute about in March. And indeed, that's what he did at the Quad. And the Quad joint leaders put out this statement, actually, on Tuesday quite higher in the joint letter statement that they always put out. They talked about infrastructure, reaffirming our shared commitment to deepened cooperation on infrastructure. And then in the same breath, so the next sentence, we also share a commitment to addressing debt issues which have been exacerbated by the pandemic. So obviously mentioning the pandemic is the cause of those debt issues, but clearly with an implication and a link to the debt trap issue. So this is a, a live issue. And in terms of the Australian Infrastructure Financing Facility for the Pacific as we know, there's been some critique of that approach in the sense that unless it involves really careful listening, proper kind of consultation, prioritisation of projects that are actually needed by communities, it actually runs the risk of being quite counter to the intentions that Australia has, particularly projects that prioritise that really just advance Australia's investment and mining interests. And so then, apart from actually worsening Pacific debt, it could do more harm than good for Australia's relationships. And there was a Jubilee report that went so far as to suggest, and I'm quoting here, that the AIFFP loan system would be creating exactly the kind of opaque, self-interested, supplier-driven loan system for which the government is criticising the Chinese. I thought that was like, ouch. <laughs> so this is the kind of tension here that I think we're trying to navigate. So what does international law then actually have to say about this? You know, in other words, how can we come up with infrastructure that will promote, apparently, the international rules-based order, if that's what we're saying we'll do? So the first general point is that international law does recognise that infrastructure is really important for meeting a lot of different goals through the broader sustainable development goals and those sorts of guidelines. So there's a goal here, nine, on industry, innovation and infrastructure. But in terms of actually sort of international law itself, in terms of treaties, I'll discuss some of these in a bit more detail, but there are treaties that support cross-border infrastructure projects, international investment law treaties, so bilateral investment treaties, free trade agreements, the provision for investor-state dispute settlement. This is what's really central to supporting infrastructure. Of course, environment treaties, climate treaties, for some reason I don't have their human rights treaties, all present obligations on states that they potentially need to consider when they're progressing infrastructure investments and, of course, SDGs. Then there are a range of, like here are just a few, <laughs> guidelines and sort of soft law model legislation around in this area. And it's one of those many areas in this international rules-based order where there's a proliferation of guidelines but not a lot of clarity around how they all fit together, and not a lot of enforceability around most of it as well. And this includes, of course, lender guidelines, and those are sort of in practice when you start looking at the projects, the ones that are most implemented, so the guidelines that the ADB has, for instance. Um, but that's the sort of general context for the international law framework here. And there are more than this. There's a framework for dignity in the built environment, etc. 
I guess I'm wondering then, this must be what Australia is thinking about, we're all thinking about when we talk about infrastructure projects that adhere to international standards and principles for development, including openness, transparency and fiscal sustainability, avoiding sustainable debt burdens. But the question I think still remains, well, how? You know, how is this actually going to happen? I think that's all probably territory you're familiar with. I wanted to touch briefly on what I'm thinking about from a theoretical perspective here. I think this is a very clear international law, international relations problem. It really requires both. And I'm obviously more comfortable, as was indicated, in the international relations space, working with constructivism and thinking about how international law norms are adapted, not just through receiving international norms and translating them, but are actually through the everyday work of lawyers and of activists constructing norms themselves drawing on various different experiences so that norms are adapted in different directions across different spaces and change over time, not in a progressive, linear manner necessarily. So the idea of the localisation and adaptation of norms. I think that's quite important here when we think about how is it that the day-to-day -day work of a deal actually interacts with international law. Um, there's an international law part of this in terms of just understanding what the treaties are and what applies. But I'm also finding that new materialism is helpful here. And I use that term very generally. <laughs> so I'm encompassing here actor network theory and Luturian type approaches. And the reason it's, I think, useful is because the policies about infrastructure all really understand infrastructure itself in, in terms of its actual materiality as doing certain things. So international law is always a bit slow to pick on these kind of theoretical developments, but there is a little bit of recent work being done, in particular in terms of how legal documents and particular objects have meaning and actually can shape international law themselves in terms of them actually having matter. And so these sorts of approaches, though, understand that you can't see a file or a document or a table or a road or a bridge as actually distinct, separate objects. You need to consider them as more like assemblages of matter that are intersecting always with their environments, whether they're in the human and their natural environments. And so within that kind of assemblage, within that sort of dynamic set of interrelationships, the matter itself can have some agency and shape events, essentially in a very simplified way. And so I find that helpful because there's, as we'll sort of see, it helps explain the way that we talk about the project having these particular impacts. It's the project that will bring access to the school. It's the road that will bring goods from somewhere else and take people to hospital. And it's the roads that here are supposed to do the work of building the rules-based order. So how do we conceptualise how, how matter, in a sense, you know, a physical material road actually shapes norms? And I think that's starting to help me at least talk about it. Anyway, I have an article under review on that theoretical side. I have to talk more about it, but I just thought I'd throw that out there as a, a beginning point. And so these photos, nothing particularly significant about them except to remind everybody about how important roads are, which I think we all know. I mean, a couple of these pictures are from PNG Upgrade, and the one on the left is actually on the bottom I took in Maynarm, just outside Mullumbimby during the flood recovery, which cut off Maynarm from its closest shops in Mullum, and it was just a really tangible reminder of how roads can connect or not, but also how that actually works. 
And so to also just demonstrate this, I mean, you can pick any number of press releases about a new project, infrastructure project, and it will always be pitched in this way. So it's the government comes up with some kind of a strategy or idea, but it's the project that will reduce time, cost, increase connectivity. It's the project that will facilitate trade, et cetera, et cetera. So this is just one example of that. So that therefore helped in kind of bringing that together. With that aside, I wanted to shift to giving some more tangible examples of how infrastructure and international law intersect. And now I think that introduction about new materialism helps to explain why I think you need to begin with the projects as well. So let's not just start with the treaty and see how they apply, but let's have a look at some projects and see what they apply, what do they do. So I mentioned that treaties can form the basis for road projects, and the Asian Highway is a UN initiative. It's a UN Economic Social Commission for Australia and the Pacific initiative based on a treaty, the Intergovernmental Agreement on the Asian Highway. It's got 30 state parties ranging from Japan to Turkey, and alongside the Trans-Asian Railway Network, which also involves a treaty, comprises a large part of the potential transport routes for the Six Belt and Road Initiative corridors. So already you can see how when you think about a road, it's very difficult to separate it from its broader networked effects. So here the Asian Highway UN Initiative is actually part of the BRI. There are other smaller examples of treaties as well. I didn't mention before, like the Greater Mekong Subregion Cross Transport Agreement. And these sort of treaties deal with issues like signage, visa and immigration of workers, you know, that need across borders, construction standards, and they might have requirements for environmental impact assessments and provide for dispute resolution. By contrast, many of you will know that the Belt and Road Initiative doesn't actually rest upon a treaty. It's just based upon a series of memorandums of understandings that are supposedly non-binding, but of course, you know, components of it do rest upon treaties and they may refer to treaty obligations as well. And they do rely upon international investment law forms of dispute resolution, like investor state dispute resolution, to actually help enforce them. And in fact, Lawyers working in international arbitration institutions, they've been expanding, you know, getting ready to do more international law work to help enforce BRI agreements, including for Chinese investors. So there's that kind of an intersection. But on the other hand, there is research, you know, increasingly suggesting that the way that the BRI memorandums are being enforced is through what's called, you know, like commercial diplomacy and more political pressure, that that's actually the way that they're being enforced, not through international law. So all of this helps set up how the international rules-based approach might work differently. So essentially, infrastructure is most directly related to international law via treaties that maybe set up the project or that protect investors. And that's certainly consistent with my experience and in talking to lawyers. If you ask them how international law matters in their work, that's what they'll think of, is how do we resolve disputes. But the other way is that, okay, so like a typical hope that's expressed for all sorts of transport projects is that the connectivity will speed up the transfer of goods and services and improve network competitiveness and then indirectly reduce poverty. So there's this clear understanding that infrastructure is needed for human rights provision and also environmental outcomes. But we do know, and there is research documenting deforestation, environmental degradation, pollution, and other aspects of these sorts of projects. And also there's an increasing recognition that if you zoom out, these sorts of big initiatives have an impact on climate change as well. 
and in 2017 UNESCO did a report on the Asian highway as an aspect actually of the BRI saying that this would mean that in addition to powering growth in the regional and global community, it could also make a major contribution to meeting the goals of the Sustainable Development Goals basically and the Paris Agreement on climate change. So there is an understanding of those intersections and when you talk to people working on projects, again, the way that they feel that is through any requirement they might have to do environmental impact assessments or due diligence. So that's where that comes out. And this actually relates then back to the material features of the infrastructure itself. To give an example of how the material features of the infrastructure affect how the project will work, this is just a little example that I'm quoting basically here from an investor. He was talking about toll roads in Myanmar and just saying that on the one hand, these roads were tolled, but they were not in a traditional sense a toll road because local traffic was able to avoid the toll. So he was saying that would actually enhance equitable access to this road and help local communities, but it also undermined the economic, you know, like the financial viability of the road. So he was saying that developers were restricted in terms of being able to move ahead in providing a better service by various pieces of infrastructure that are around the toll road itself. And that included buildings, toll gates and all these sorts of things. So in that way, the infrastructure itself, the pre-existing infrastructure, the toll gates, the way that people could avoid it, were all affecting its attractiveness for investors and therefore ability to actually fix it. Uh, but also its interrelationship with human rights and the environment around it and the accessibility. So the materiality of the infrastructure itself is sort of shaping how projects can do this kind of accessibility work. But as I said, the main way that this is dealt with is through environmental impact assessments in terms of how you try and work out these kind of impacts. You know, how many trees are going to be removed, how many homes will have to be relocated, all of those things come out in the EIAs. That's basically how environmental and human rights laws are translated, are adapted, interpreted within the project, within the deal. So they're all a little, they are a bit different, of course, environmental impact assessments, but there's also certainly a common structure and pattern to the way they're set up. This is nothing particularly special about this example, but it just shows you the way that they work is they separate the different issues, whereas, in fact, they're very related, but they'll have the environmental issues and impacts rather than kind of harms, and then the mitigation measures. What can you do to fix these? And they'll allocate who will implement them. What's the responsibility in terms of responding to them? And so what I think is kind of interesting about that is that, apart from separating out the environmental and human rights issues, but the project itself is also separated and its impacts are separated from those who will do the action that mitigates them. And more than that, through doing that sort of separation work, the EIA is presenting itself as a kind of objective piece of analysis. That's part of the architecture of the deal. And as these reports are amended and adjusted in the offices of the investors, these impacts or harms are translated into knowable investment risks. And that's very important because once those risks are knowable, then investors can understand those risks. And that's how you turn a possible project into a deal that can be done or into a bankable deal. I just wanted to point out too that although there are social impact assessments which do kind of cover human rights, human rights aren't really covered in environmental impact assessments. The only mention in that particular one was because this was part of the AIIB was one of the lenders and they have their own standards. So again, just showing you how those standards flow through. One mention of human rights and that was about ensuring the development process 
fosters for respect for affected parties' human rights. And the way it was interpreted in this particular EIA was that this was about Indigenous peoples and there were no Indigenous people, so it wasn't relevant, essentially, and that was that. So what happens, this is all really important because by translating these risks into knowable investor risks, the deal can get done, it becomes bankable. But the point is that actually the closest link then between infrastructure deals and international law is via these risk assessment type frameworks. And they're not enforced actually through international law really at all. So in that way, the actual, if you look at an infrastructure project, it doesn't even really sit within the international rules-based order apart from protecting investors, essentially. Another kind of a little example of how the deals intersect with international law is on the issue of consultation and free and prior informed consent, which is definitely a human rights term and it's very contested. And there's obviously a lot of research now around how consultation programs, you know, there's a lot of complexities with them. They're not always, like EIA is not always implemented very well. But it's a really complex issue actually, you know, trying to work out how you balance all of this. So this one is just a little example. Frontier Myanmar ran a couple of articles about this part of the Asian highway in Myanmar where some protesters weren't happy about a particular quarry being used and they ended up having shots fired at them. And so ADB went and did an investigation and they found that the quarry didn't meet its environmental safeguards. So again, the human rights and environment aspects really were intersecting there. But actually then they paused their investment on this part of the highway. And so essentially what happened was it was left as a... I'm trying to find the quote. I've lost the quote. But the stretch of highway was just left as like a muddy stretch of bitumen, you know, with holes full of water, and the investment wasn't actually done. And in one of the later articles, the journalists kind of reflected back and said... You know, this is actually the kind of experience that might make governments not want to work with the ADB or the World Bank, in fact, to actually get this infrastructure built if they need to. And that, of course, would make BRI and low governance type approaches potentially more attractive. So this is the tension that's being, that has to be trodden. <laughs> and the other issue that's related to that, I think, that comes up when you talk to investors, and an investor in Myanmar actually used the word sparkly in saying that the international aid organisations are really only interested in doing the sparkly deals. That's going to be airports and ports that actually benefit them. Those are the ones that attract information and that really undermines the ability to do proper consultation work that actually extends to project selection and ensuring that the right sorts of projects are done. So as these projects are worked into these bankable deals, the standardised international guidelines offer some comfort for investors that these localised risks are being taken into account and can be mitigated. And that's not to say that they're not really helpful and the checklists aren't really helpful and important for a certain, you know, what those risks actually are, but it sort of means that they're incredibly general and they're not actually really accompanied by enforceability. So that, again, essentially, apart from protecting investors, infrastructure deals are not actually working within the international rules-based order if you take this kind of approach. So the question is how can that work, basically? I guess the point here is that mega transportation infrastructure, it can be viewed as interrelated with laws and peoples and environments, and, yes, that suggests that international law has some capacity to promote certain types of infrastructure development. But the role of international law in helping with that is actually quite weak and even diminishing if you think about the growing role of the BRI and its looser framework. 
So international law is quite limited to offering options for risk management and to dispute settlement. And even there, you know, we're identifying the shift towards power-based diplomatic investor protections and, of course, the influence of the debt trap, which doesn't fit very neatly into international law frameworks at all. So at least to that extent, infrastructure so far in these examples, and these are, you know, I think actually fairly transferable examples in a way. I can talk about that later. But they're not supporting the rules-based order, and in fact, they barely use it. But also, even if infrastructure diplomacy does promote a rules-based order surrounding international law, well, then it's promoting an order that, as it currently stands, actually centres and separates some humans and environmental impacts more than others. So protecting investors and deploying a focus on the funding gaps and the needs of the deal and the market to justify having these wide-ranging, general, fragmented risk management type frameworks and approaches that really centre investor returns and demands over environmental and human rights protections, all in order to sort of meet this funding gap. And then that really masks the reasons for these funding gaps, which can include like, as I said, this decades of privatisation, colonial legacies, issues with a global financial system that are actually driving the gap between the demand and need for infrastructure. So all of this, in a sense, I think just comes down to supporting those that are thinking that the rules-based order isn't really about promoting international law norms at all except for the international law that protects investments. And that's obviously not surprising for many critical scholars that see international law as generating predictable outsiders that are left out or translated into risks as part of this process than actually being part of the rules-based order at all. I really wanted to just finish by bringing it back then for discussion to the way that this is actually a really alive issue that's still ongoing. And there are some hints about how Australia is planning to navigate this kind of tension and how they're going to try and link the infrastructure projects they're supporting to also supporting the rules-based order. These are from the AIFFP website, the little blurbs. And this was just like an indication, but you know, it's an interesting one. And you can see how they're really, like, this is the summary of this project for deep sea ports in Papua New Guinea, that it's all about local communities that are going to benefit from this. They're going to access goods and services. The communities depend on these wharves. It just so happens that it happens to also be really helpful for Australia to have some deep sea ports in PNG, but that's not mentioned. And then similarly, the highway upgrade is all about, yes, absolutely improving transport connectivity, that language that we always see, but also the investment will apparently support gender equality and the investment will provide this access to health and education. So the narrative is that the infrastructure itself, via good design, is going to secure what international law and its guidelines have really struggled to do. Okay, so if international law can't do this, the roads will do it. So somehow the infrastructure that is set up as doing this positive norm-building work, and it's the infrastructure that promotes the rules-based order and not the other way around. That's, I guess, a bit rambling. But anyway, these are the sorts of questions that I was thinking about would be useful to hear from you all, I think, which is about how Australia's infrastructure could contribute, actually, to international law. How do we chart this tension going forward? work does international law need to do, if it needs to do anything, really, to respond to a world that centres around, or has a big priority towards anyway, I shouldn't say centres around, but infrastructure diplomacy is so central to. And, you know, obviously I think that international lawyers need to start thinking about infrastructure a little bit more, but that may not be wrong. But I think also if we are going to be thinking about infrastructure, what do we need to be thinking about going forward? So that's all. Thank you. 
For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.